welcome back to The Lover's Hole. This is the Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And Mike. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matrin canon of the great Patrick O'Brien. Mike catches up with where we were last week and where we might be headed to this week. Oh, I'd love to, Ian. Thanks. So last week, Jack was searching the Galapagos Islands for the Norfolk, and he took off in a hurry when he heard she was close by. Now, this cut Stephen's nature study short, and by short, I mean he couldn't even get off the boat, leading to a pretty deep rift between the two of them. But all of that got swept away when Jack and Stephen found themselves lost overboard. They were picked up by a boat crewed by feisty Polynesian women, deposited on an uncharted island to fend for themselves with only fish hooks and the clothes they stood up in. Now, this time, Jack begins to figure out how they might survive on this desert island, while Stephen takes issue with Jack's taste in coconuts. And all along, they're doing their best to comfort each other in this great predicament they're in. Help might be closer at hand than they think. And we're going to talk a little bit about rumors of a new Patrick O'Brien movie project on the horizon. So Stephen and Nathaniel Martin also give us a reminder that we're on the far side of the world, but that's not the only reference we've come across to far side of the world. No, that's right, Mike. When we were looking on Wikipedia for content about the far side of the world, we got that disambiguation page and God bless him. Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett helps us out with a song about the far side of the world. Oh, Mike, where would we be without Jimmy Buffett? I'll tell you. Well, you know, it's it's funny, Ian. Down here in, in Florida, you know, we're all parrot heads for Jimmy Buffett. Boy, he is great. He is phenomenal. So we join our heroes on this deserted desert island, as you might say, as Jack wakes up. He, like he always is, has been woken up by a change in the wind. He's noticed that the sea is getting up. He's noticing that the breeze has strengthened while he was sleeping. And Mike, O'Brien sets the scene for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful depiction of this desert island scene that is in front of their eyes. It says, the scene before him was one of extraordinary beauty. The sun was not yet high enough to make the coral sand blaze and glare, but it did bring out the bright green of the lagoon in all its glory, the whiteness of the breakers, the ocean blue beyond them, the various purities of the sky raging by imperceptible gradations from violet in the extreme west to something wholly celestial where the sun was rising. He was aware of it, And together with the lively freshness of the day, it delighted all that part of his mind which was not taken up with trying to estimate the course of the Pahi while they were aboard her and their present position with regard to the surprise's probable line of return. This is very, very beautiful writing. This is O'Brien using his favourite images of light and sky as the touch point here. Yeah, I, I just love this. This is this is kind of that cinematic, we're right there, right there, and thinking how glorious this is, whether they're blue water sailing, whether it's a tropical island, whether they're uh, you know in a nice bar somewhere in one of our favorite islands. Brilliant. Uh, well, Jack had been thinking about where they might be and where their surprise might look for them ever since he arrived on the island. 
Now, he had assured Stephen that all was well, but he wasn't convinced himself. He'd been running these figures throughout his mind all night, including while he was dreaming. And he draws two lines in the sand. One is the Pahis voyage, you know, where they had gone with these Polynesian women that had rescued them. And the other is the likely return of the surprise. And looking at the two lines and, and kind of the this long perpendicular between them, he realizes that it's scarcely possible that the surprise would see this uncharted island so far to the north. However, he does think to himself, depending how long the uh, the church service, as he calls it, <laughs> lasted on the Pahi, that maybe that would be a little bit shorter. So I think in his mind, he's thinking that oh, a church went on for hours and hours. So maybe if they weren't sailing as fast and as far, might be closer, it would really then come down to how long is Moe going to search before duty compels him to go back after the Norfolk. Maybe it's possible, he thinks. Wow. And it's funny, O'Brien starts us out in Jack's point of view, and Jack can open an eye and take in the scene, but he's straight away distracted by these cares. He's got real, real worries about just how feasible it is that they might have been able to be tracked and then found by the crew of the Surprise. Stephen hasn't got any of those distractions. He wakes up to this glorious day and says, ah, Jack, elegant day. And it's a totally different mindset from Stephen. He's very contented, actually, pretty matter of fact. When Jack asks him how long the ceremony on the Pahi was, this so-called church service, Stephen says, well, I, I don't think so. Not long at all. And of course, Jack is really fishing for an overestimate. And Stephen is going, nah, I don't think we spent long at it at all. He says, uh, boredom and dread made it seem much longer than it actually was. <laughs> and we get this lovely case of Jack's reaction being described only in Stephen's words. Watching Jack's response, Stephen says, why, brother, you look quite furious. You dash out your drawing in the sand. Are you vexed at not seeing the ship? It will soon appear, I am sure. Your explanation last night convinced me entirely. Nothing could be more reasonable nor more cogently expressed. And he goes on and tells Jack that he, Stephen, is thinking about breakfast now. He's been able to climb a coconut palm to get breakfast and thinks that Jack, who's the complete sailor man, should go ahead and get them something. And Mike, it's beautiful. I think, I think Stephen's on the level, but there's a little bit of ambiguity in my mind that maybe he's he's keeping this this sort of ingenuous pretense up to, to keep Jack's spirits up. But it's going to continue as we'll see. Right. And I love, too, that, you know, Jack is so worried about getting rescued. Stephen either is unconcerned or is feigning to be unconcerned, although Jack is feigning to be unconcerned, clearly, yeah. to Stephen. And, but, but Stephen is like, look, it's time for breakfast. Let's quit worrying about this, <laughs> right? And so he's telling Jack, you know, look, you know, you're the complete seaman. Why don't, uh, why don't you run up that tree, man? And uh, Jack, kind of considering these palm trees, and thinking, you know, as a youth, he used to shoot straight up these things, but he's also thinking that he weighs a lot more than he did back then. And that might make things a bit precarious. He kind of thinking about himself, about, you know, kind of the the weight at the top of this bendy tree and this strong wind. So he, he looks around, he picks the stoutest tree. And, and though it's swinging wildly as Jack gets to the top, uh, Jack tells Stephen that he can see the Pahi lying to 12 miles off. And Stephen replies, is that so? Listen, Jack, are you privately eating a nut up there and drinking while I <laughs> perish here from mere one? That's shame of it. <laughs> so Stephen's like, I don't care what you see up there, 
bring me a coconut. So then the palm swings slowly back to its highest point, and Jack sees the surprise on the horizon, <gasps> steering for the pahi. And I'm excited. Jack's excited. He tells yeah. Stephen, who replies, well, is there anything you have to do about that right now? And Jack's like, no. And he said, well, then throw down some coconuts and stop swinging around in the trees for all love. It's just you know, hilarious. I love this. And they're continuing to misunderstand each other, or at least to be sort of across purposes. Because right. Jack gets down, he says, why, why, why no huzzah? Why no cutting of capers? And we get this nice phrase, cutting capers. And it's a, it's a bit of an O'Brienism. We have it in a couple of other places in the canon, but we had it right back in Master and Commander. So uh, a caper, or cutting a caper, is to frolic or romp. And Mike, we understand that this noun caper comes from the Latin for goat. And maybe that means there's an allusion here to the idea of a young goat clumsily frolicking about. Um, the expression came in Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, at 1C3. Faith, I can cut a caper. And it also perhaps comes from the Italian word capriolare, meaning jump in the air. So some pretty good knowledge there from the internet. Well done, the internet. And uh, you might remember there was the uh, the master with the Scots accent in uh, Master and Commander who said, it looks as though those infernal buggers were cutting their capers again, sir. With really great apologies for the Scottish <laughs> accent. <laughs> and meanwhile, Stephen, he had expected the ship all along. This is why he's not cutting any capers. This is why he's not saying, Hazar. He's like, well, of course the ship's there. I completely expected the ship to be there. And Jack, meanwhile, is overjoyed that they're saved. He was genuinely thinking that they were at the long end of a pretty hairy rope, I think. Stephen, though, is ready for breakfast. He's moaning at Jack, not only for being slow with throwing down the coconuts, that he's picked old hard ones instead of green ones. Oh, Jack, what a thoughtless wretch. Luckily, Stephen has his surgical pocket lancet with him. And Stephen thinks nothing of this, but Jack is going, oh, this could save us. I'm going to use it to make a signal for the surprise. So Jack gets around to hanging his shirt from a tripod of palm fronds. He's concerned with the wind strengthening, though, and the wind backing in direction as well. The sea's getting up. And now what do we see? The surprise is chasing the Pahi fast away to the west. And it's going to take a week or more of beating back up wind if the surprise should still see the island and should still then decide to come back this way rather than heading on to the Marquesas. So even though we've seen the surprise, Jack, knowing something about seamanship, knows that it's absolutely not a sure thing that they're saved. No. And, and and once again, Ian, as you say, we find out what Jack's doing through Stephen. You know, Stephen says, don't look so careworn. So clearly Jack's face has changed from this excitement to, oh, no. And, and you know, Stephen invites him to listen to the booming of the sea. And, and I love this because Jack clearly is completely taken with, oh, my God, you know, the surprise is going the wrong direction now, given the wind in the sea. And Jack is such a good friend that he accommodates him. He listens. They chat about that. And uh, he, uh, again, he puts on a good face. He's kind of telling Stephen that, you know, we may be on the island for some time, but hey, it's fine for fishing. And, you know, when we get out on the reef, there'll be these sea snails, these winkles that we can gather, add to our menu here. Uh, but Stephen insists, no, 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 the ship is close. And Jack tries to talk him a little bit through the nautical problem of the ship reaching him. And Stephen says, well, she'll just have to ply diligently to windward. <laughs> and then O'Brien writes, and I just love this. And once again, 
Jack was about to explain the increasing degree of leeway that even the most weatherly ship must make as the increasing force of the wind obliged the sails to be weak or taken in when he reflected that his explanation would do no good. <laughs> Invincible ignorance could not be enlightened. No. <laughs> and although no doubt he might succeed in making Stephen anxious and unhappy, this would not really advance them very much. I love, I love this insight oh, from Jack. Great wisdom. Great wisdom. Boy, I need to I need to write this down, write it on my wrist, look at my palm every once in a while and say, no, 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 no leave it, leave it. Yeah. So Jack, I mean, this is a great counseling instruction. He therefore listened quietly to his friend's assurance that Moet would certainly find some means of overcoming these difficulties. Impossible was not a word he connected with the Navy. This is Stephen still. Nothing could exceed the zeal of the Mariners. And should there be a little delay, it would enable him to complete his study of the island's flora and fauna. Only a brief delay was required, however. So pitifully meager was the tale by land. Oh, God. Stephen and Jack, again, in two very different headspaces here. It's amazing here. Stephen's naive optimism, his yeah. complete, I think, assurance that Jack and the crew can make and accomplish anything. Jack's love for his friends and his attempts to kind of protect Stephen. His insight that, you know, it's not just about being right, but, you know, about how people are feeling and your connection and relationship. Yeah. And and it's fascinating to me, Ian, as I think about it in this book, so many times, you know, we've been kind of, things are looking really bleak. We've been kind of on the brink. I, I guess I had forgotten how much this happens. And that always pulls up in me this reminder about how much we love these unique, wonderful characters and their yeah. relationship here. They did plumb so much of that in the movie in this nuance and subtlety, but there's so much more here that we could do. So I am. I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about this later. So excited that we may, 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 may. You know, I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like Jack's reckoning here. May, may, may in <laughs> 10,001 have a prequel coming. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And it's it's a really interesting comparison between the movie and the books. I think the in the books the the big relationship is between Jack and Stephen and also between them and uh, Diana and Sophie. Right. And in the movie I think the the relationship is between Jack and the ship and the crew. Right. And you can see how that works in the movie. I don't, you know, it's it's clearly very different therefore from yeah. how it's all working in the books. And you're absolutely right. It shows O'Brien only has to give us a little bit of jeopardy for these characters for us to feel, like you say, that reminder of how, how closely we feel attached to them. Now, it, it also occurs to me that if we go along with the fact that Stephen might be faking it, which I'm not sure that he is, yeah. but Jack is certainly moderating what he says and concealing his, his anxieties from Stephen in order to keep his friend's mood up. And... He's clearly not succeeding because Stephen can see that Jack is anxious. And just in the last chapter, it was Stephen who was frustrated with his own inability to conceal his feelings. We had that line about uh, Volta Sholto Pensieri Stretti, that he wasn't managing to maintain his deadpan and was getting all this unwanted kind of, you know, a, a affection and, and sympathy from the crew of the surprise. Well, you know, it's, it's happening the other way around. Right. And we move from this really deeply moving insight, I think, into their friendship into a quintessential Stephen moment and Stephen's like a goldfish so easily distracted by something to do with nature's oh look over here there's coral and straight away he's got no boundaries at all on just yammering away about natural history 
So here we go. A classic O'Brien philosophy nature commentary. I have been contemplating on coral, says Stephen, and my mind is staggered, amazed, confounded at the thought of these countless myriads of animalcula industriously sifting the lime from the seawater for so vast a sequence of generations and in such prodigious quantities that they have formed this island, this reef, to say nothing of countless others that do exist. And all founded upon what? Upon the skeletons of other coral polyps, the calcareous external skeletons of other coral polyps in quantities that run far beyond conception. That is what. For I do assure you, Jack, that everything here, apart from these trifling adventitious vegetables, he says, waving towards the palms, is coral. Living or dead, coral sand or solid coralline accumulation. There is no subjacent rock at all. How can it have begun in this deep tempestuous sea? The force of these waves is very great. The animalculum is miserably frail. How do these islands come about? I cannot tell at all. I cannot form the beginning of a hypothesis. <laughs> wow. It's, wow. It's very beautiful and very, like, from the point of view of a traditional adventure story, this is a very oddly placed bit of reflection. <laughs> but from the point of view of Stephen's character, it's absolutely dead on. In this amazing thing of here we have, you know, sort of two guys, at least one of who's contemplating their own mortality. Yeah. And then we've got these tens of thousands of millions of years of coral forming islands, you know, and just the, 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 the yeah. small contributions, just kind of this this contrasting, this back and forth, this light and big and big picture and small picture. Uh, I love it. Not to mention this, you know, Jack kind of, Stephen, we may not be rescued, but it's all going to be okay. Stephen, Jack, isn't nature fascinating and miraculous? It's <laughs> <laughs> great. It is great. And I, I, I really like that odd phrase, and maybe it's planted there to be a bit of philosophy for us. Yeah. The force of these waves is very great. The animalculum is miserably frail. That's almost like a motto for humankind. Like, get some perspective, people, is right. what Brian's trying to tell us. Now, fans of the West Wing will know that President Bartlett had a little motto on his desk, which was a copy of a little motto that was on JFK's desk, which in turn was a copy of a little wooden motto board that Admiral Hyman Rickover used to hand out to newly frocked submarine captains in the United States Navy. It says, oh God, thy sea is so great and my boat is so small. And I think there's a little bit of that here as well. I love that. Wow. Wow. Oh. Well, Jack's back on practicality. He's thinking about getting bait. He's thinking about fishing. He's thinking, how are we going to make a fire? And then Stephen mentions that he saw what appeared to be a boulder in the lagoon. But perhaps now that he's thinking that there's no rock here, he's saying perhaps it's ambergris. And yeah. Jack asked if he's gone to look at it. And then there was kind of a real left turn for me here because Stephen says, no, he hasn't gone to look at it because, and I'll, I'll just give it to Brian here, the association of rarity, wealth, and so on instantly brought that unfortunate brass box to my mind that most unwelcome box from the Danae packet, which is now aboard the Surprise. And I'm thinking, what? This yeah. What in the world? We, you know, we're in life and death, and we're ambergris, and uh, so all of a sudden. And then, so Stephen continues, he says, as the recollection came to me, so I grew perfectly convinced, as by a revelation, that rats or cockroaches or bookworms or various molds were eating its contents to our utter ruin. 
eating them with tropical avidity, a million of money. The thought fairly cut my legs from under me, and I have sat here ever since. Hmm. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Stephen? Stephen never worries about money. Uh-uh. This is not even his money. This is, you know, kind of all his intelligence funds that were stuck to the side secretly that Stephen yeah. sort of rescued back off. What is going on here? And all this kind of big picture to the small thoughts of money and everything. And then he goes on. It's a thousand to one. We shall never have any need of the brass box, nor of the ambergris, unless it can be eaten, says Jack to himself. Yeah. So Jack is like, are you kidding me? You know, the brass box. So I, I think Jack and I are, are, are kind of here. And then Jack, again, thinking to himself, says, and if the weather goes on breaking up like this, if it really does come to blow and surprise is driven a great way to leeward, then it's 10,000 to one or more, much more, but allowed Speaking aloud, that is, giving Stephen a hand up, he said, let us go and have a look. If it is ambergris, we're made men. We have but to go to the nearest dealer and exchange it for its weight in gold. And he's laughing away. God, O'Brien is just, you know, kind of up and down and side to side with this philosophical kind of life insightful commentary here human nature you know this this is not necessarily what comes to my mind as naval historical fiction in, no. in, in the main right <laughs> yeah. gosh you know steven not not very long ago right it was was drowning then now unconcerned about dying now you know told that he may live out in his life on this island is stopped at his tracks by the thought of losing these riches in this brass box. <laughs> and so it's like, what? What's going yeah. on here? And it's, it's funny that it's leapt to the front of his mind as well. And we remember he was quite uneasy about the circumstances in which he had been led to find out about this brass box that was hidden in the Danai. And it hasn't been mentioned since. And, oh, right. and in, in, I searched all the way through the text going, why is he so bothered about this brass box right right but well i mean I'm, i don't know there's also the possibility i guess that maybe there was meant to be some other discourse about the brass box that dropped out of the edit but i think it's just o'brien has been thinking about this he's carrying the character of Stephen in his head and he's thinking yeah this has been bugging him and now this this botheration that he has about the suspicious and sort of corrupting nature of this money is brought to the surface by Stephen as he's contemplating all of this it's very very interesting and very deep Oh, you're right. And you, uh, I think you had mentioned that they had found it on the larboard side. Oh, yeah, yeah. He talked about it when they discovered it. it says it's on the left or unlucky or indeed sinister side. That is to say the larboard side of the packet. Right. So he's, right. he's clearly got this association in Stephen's mind, not yeah. really laid out front and center for us, but there's an association in Stephen's mind of this money with bad luck and misfortune and ill deeds. Well, and the, and the amazing thing is we're, we're not finished with this whole long thread that's going right. on here. So they're off to see the ambergris. And what happens? Well, they, uh, <laughs> they go to investigate this object and we discover it was not ambergris. It was a piece of crystalline limestone, mottled and in part translucent, which would make it like look like ambergris. And it fairly stupefied Maturin. And remember, he's just a few sentences ago said, there is nothing here apart from vegetables and coral. Right. And that that really secure scientific knowledge of his, completely true, by the way, about the creation of, of coral atolls, is suddenly tipped upside down by finding a piece of limestone on the beach. How can such things be? He asked, gazing out into the offing. 
There's no question of glaciers, icebergs. How can such things possibly come about? There is the boat. <laughs> Completely, by the way, in amongst this philosophical music. Oh, yeah, there's the boat. I have it, he cried. The rock was brought tangled in the roots of a tree, a great tree swept away by remote flood or tornado, cast up after the deer knows how many thousand miles of drifting, and here decaying, leaving its incorruptible burden. Come, Jack, help me turn it. See, he cried with a shining face as he heaved over. In these anfractuosities there are still traces of roots. What a discovery! What did you mean when you said boat, says Jack? Why, our boat, of course. It's the, the, the big one, the, the launch. Come to fetch us, as you always had said it would. Lord Jack, he said, looking up with an entirely different expression. How in God's name shall I ever face them at all? Wow. <laughs> Jeez, this roller coaster of emotions. And, and I love, O'Brien doesn't tell us any of this thing, doesn't tell us yeah. what it means, doesn't tell us what to think. He shows us all of this, this, these beautifully rendered human emotions from the depths of our souls and our friendship. And then this final hairpin turn, Stephen, once again, in the glory of discovery and his rational scientific self, his kind of removed mind, jumping all of a sudden, bam, into this insightful, emotional, self-reflecting heart as he ponders, how does he face the surprises given what he's put everybody through? Ah, amazing. <sighs> So, from, from the wonders of the universe to the heart of human relationships and emotions. That's a big old journey. I, I think if we're going to reflect that deeply, Mike, it might be time for some refreshment. What do you say? Yo, oh, let's do. I'm, I'm, I'm parched. <laughs> <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from your break, reflecting on the wonders of the universe. Um, we want to say, first of all, by the way, thank you this episode. Big thank you to one of the uh, one of the unsung heroes of the story of the Lover's Hole, our editor, Sam Luce. Sam, you are editing this in a super fast turnaround for us this weekend. Please leave this bit in because we really want to say we appreciate the work that you do taking care of these edits for us. So bravo. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. And and thank you, Patreon supporters who help us pay for Sam. God bless Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> So, Mike, let's just go back to the topic of movies for a second, because we're here partway through the far side of the world this week, mid-June 2021, as we have been putting this podcast together, the internet has been buzzing with rumors, who would have thought it, rumors about a forthcoming prequel to the Peter Weir Master and Commander movie. Now, the, the online rumors suggest that the movie is in the offing mainly because of um, some news that the great writer, great children's writer especially, Patrick Ness, uh, he wrote A Monster Calls and a couple of other great books and great screenplays. Patrick Ness has been engaged to write a screenplay by 20th Century Studios. Now, presume therefore that 20th Century Studios still own the rights to the Patrick O'Brien books as movies, just as they did as 20th Century Fox when Peter Weir made this movie back in 2003. I think I remember reading that the first movie was a bit of a personal passion project right, for Tom right. Rothman, who was at 20th Century Fox back then. Tom Rothman's now over at uh, Sony Pictures. He's the chairman of Sony Pictures. So there must be somebody else at 20th Century Studios, which is now part of the Disney empire, who must be thinking, this is something we could do again. Now, 
the Peter Weir movie back in 2003 was really well received. Loads of Patrick O'Brien fans, including you and me, Mike, right? Um, yes. L- loved the movie. Lots of people were brought to the Patrick O'Brien books by the Peter Weir movie, but I don't think it made a spectacular return on its fairly big budget. And when we were speaking to uh, Gord Lacko, um in in our past here, he said, well, that's that's the challenge. You know, it's the difference between a movie that you're proud to have made and a movie that makes its money back for its investors. But here we go. The rumors say that there aren't any specific deals in place yet for actors or for a specific director, although there's a whole series of online debates about who that, that might all be and what would be good and what would be not so good. I'm, I'm sure there's a strong we want Russell Crowe back camp. Um, there's also a pretty strong camp that says Russell Crowe is really a little too old. If, in, if as we hear, the movie's going to cover the origin, the Master and Commander story, right from the beginning um, in Port Mahon, then maybe it's a bit of a stretch, even even with CGI de-aging to put the great Russell Crowe back in the 20-something Jack Aubrey. But but it would it would do my heart good to see him somewhere in the film, though. I, I would love that. Uh, oh. Wouldn't he be a great admiral or a great... Uh, he, he could do so many things here. Yeah, he'd be a great, great Admiral Thornton. Oh. And of course, I mean, wouldn't it be great for a movie to begin... In the pillared octagon room with oh. the, with the string quartet, wouldn't that be awesome? Please, ah, please, please bring it on. Anyway, Mike, there's a, there's a lot of development hell for us still to go through. Um, writing a screenplay is a long way from being the same thing as there's a production actually taking place. Um, Francis Ford Coppola wrote the screenplay for Patton in 1963, and the movie finally appeared in 1970. Um, Avatar Two was announced to the public as in development back in 2010. <laughs> Right, and here and we are. We're waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's promised next year, so don't hold your breath. Yeah, the only thing slower than that is George R. R. Martin writing books. Right. Please get the next one out. <laughs> Meanwhile, th- there's an entire internet for us all to fill with speculation and opinion. You can jump on the Facebook page of facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole. Yes. You can tweet us on at whole lubbers you can jump on the um r slash aubrey matrin chat on reddit you can jump on the aubrey matrin appreciation society on facebook you can jump on the patrick o'brien appreciation society on facebook you can jump on the gun room of hms surprise and tell the world what you think and you might find us there and we might join in yeah i'm, I'm kind of interested you know our friends over at the cinephiles podcast would love to know what they think. And and they're a lot closer to industry insiders. I'd love to know if they have any gossip to share. That yeah. Would be Steve and John, what have you got? Yeah. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, I guess we're going to have to rip ourselves away from the rumors, as excited as we are on that. Although I'm, I'm really torn because I'd love to see another movie. Yeah. And I'd really love to see the, the Bridgerton version. <laughs> I'd love to have them all roll out many, many, many all at once and everything else. So, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll take whatever we can get. Thank you very much. Absolutely. <laughs> there, are, there are things about the Bridgerton series that might or might not kind of chime in with the O'Brien sensibility. We'll see. No, 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 no. right. And, I, and I, I was thinking more that somebody who made a lot, instead of having one two hour, what if we could have like 10 two hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did, didn't, didn't mean to uh, you know, be pushing for anything that would be untoward in the canon. So, you know, as, as we rejoin our heroes back on the island, Stephen 
continues to sit there by that rock that they found. Jack has kind of run up to signal the boat and give them directions for, for getting in. He's he's back at the top of his palm tree now. And as they get off and, and come onto the island, Honey, who's who's commanded the launch here, is so happy to see Jack. He almost hugs him. And I, I love that. <laughs> I just thought that was really neat. Thinking here, here we are way back when and, and to see that I'm I, I would have hugged them both, I think. So they had seen the signal, but they could really hardly hope that it was Jack and and Stephen. And Honey asked Jack about, you know, how he's doing. And, and then he asked about the doctor because the doctor's clearly not there. And and Jack tells him and he asks how they're doing. He asks if it's been a long pull. And Bondin laughs, telling him, you know, it's just eight hours. So they've been rowing furiously for eight hours to come save these guys, which is just awesome. Um, and Jack asks Calamy to go find Stephen on the other side of the island and tell him to come eat some of the food that the boat has brought. And, and I, I, of course... You know, he, he tells them what it is, but I love the line a little bit before there where they're saying, Killick put up some milk punch and pickled seal, sir, in case you wasn't dead. <laughs> not, not only do we get this great phrase, milk punch and pickled seal, which is, is, as you've pointed out, Ian, so fun to say, but in case you wasn't dead. And he, <laughs> that's right. And he also tells Calumet, to tell Stephen, you know, let's be ready to leave soon because it may come to blow. And then he asked Honey to tell him what has happened. It's it's fascinating because this would have been the drama, right? If this was right. the this is this the Hollywood version of this story, we would have been on deck, on the surprise as they all realize there would have been all kinds of alarm and tension and rah rah rah. rah. But we get this all given to a second hand, told by a midshipman and, and Bonden basically. A few hours before dawn, we learn all spoken second hand, a swabber had seen the window open and they realized that Jack and Stephen were gone. And Moat had cried out just the words, it's the doctor, before turning the ship around. They came back to where they had likely lost them overboard, encouraged by the sight of four pieces of driftwood along the way. But we read they had their hearts in their boots and their eyes fairly destroyed with having stared so long quite in vain. And they basically hove to right there. They spent the night trying not to move. All the officers on deck or in the tops, they say that the atmosphere was like an undertaker's barge with a crew of mutes. And at dawn, they spread the boats out to search westward. They found a fresh U.S. Navy beef barrel along the way. And Jack, by the way, is still in piratical chase the Norfolk mode because he's right across this. Oh, American beef barrel. Ah, good news. Meanwhile, Hog the Whaler spotted what he thought would be an island to the north. So they really lucked out having somebody aboard who knew that the little shadow of cloud on the horizon was the sign of an island, albeit one that they couldn't tell how big or small or how near or how far it was. A patch of white sky with a green reflection 20 or more miles off. So they had debated whether this was an island. Um, and whether Jack and Stephen could have reached it so far north, whether they could then leave their course so far. So they had sent the blue cutter off, heading north under all sail to see if it was an island. The cutter had come racing back, but the cloud was spoiling the light and they couldn't read her signals until it was in hailing distance. There was an island and they had seen a two-masted vessel, which would have been the Pahi, far to the west-northwest of the island. And again, they were super lucky to have the whaling crew aboard. The whalers told the sailors of the surprise that the weather seemed to be shaping up into a big blow. This therefore seemed to be their last chance. So they changed course. Calamy finally caught sight of the Pahi sails. Hog 
confirmed that it was a par. He confirmed that it was the island. And Moet sent Honey off with the launch to the island. And then meanwhile, he went to see if the par he had picked them up. They rigged the launch as a schooner, but they quickly realized that they just couldn't beat up in this weather. So they started rowing. And, you know, that kind of made sense to Jack now because he hadn't spotted them earlier, but without the sails, they would just have been, you know, they would just disappeared into the ocean. Now, Honey had spotted the shirt signals and that had encouraged them. And they had rowed so hard that Bondin and Padine actually broke their oars. And and in the midst of them telling the story, Jack tells Honey to remind him to take the cost of the oars out of their pay. And everybody gets a, a great <laughs> laugh out of this. You know, O'Brien says, this was perhaps the most deeply relished stroke of wit since Gibraltar. So, yeah, that had meant a lot to laugh about up until yeah. now. Here there was a little bit. And, and, and Jack's wit is normally pretty shallow waters anyway, so, you know. <laughs> Too true, right. And they're all glad, and as Jack points out, that they'll be able to rejoin the surprise, given the way the sea's running now and the wind, using completely sails. Nobody's going to have to stroke at all. Jack sends Bonded off to fetch Stephen, since Stephen, quite typical Stephen, had sent a message back with Calamy that he wasn't hungry and he had investigations to make. Now, that would be typical Stephen out you know, on botanizing. Now we know this might be Stephen kind of not wanting to face the crew. Yeah. Jack, uh, Jack, again, a, a little insightful, tells the crew not to wish Stephen well, not to ask him how he's doing. You know, he tells him that the long soaking and drinking salt water has really left him poorly. So, you know, kind of, yeah, give Stephen a little room here. It's it's lovely, isn't it? But the the crew are just as in sync with Stephen, I think, as Jack yeah. is. And O'Brien says Jack's words weren't needed. The, the men, it says, would never have taken notice of Stephen's misfortune, nor made him feel the enormous amount of trouble that he had caused. And remember, this is because Stephen leaning out of the, uh, yeah. the, the the stern gallery there with his net was what had got us here in the first place. They very kindly all act indifferently um, when he arrives and are very careful not to put any great notice of him in this situation. Um, and carefully and gently, he says, they put him into the boat, they cover him and keep him warm. As the tales begin to be told, Stephen recovers and starts to, to join in with Jack, telling the crew about their adventures, about Jack's near castration, about Stephen's terror when his pig had misbehaved aboard the Pahi with the bosun's mate, this terrifying female bosun's mate behind him. And Stephen joined in a little and added some details. But as they got close in with a surprise, Stephen fell silent again. And it says here, the hearty, unfeigned, affectionate welcome and the underlying kindness so characteristic of the service, brutal though it was at times, would have dealt with a temperament far more morose than Stephen's. And Mike, Stephen's got to shape up right. He's got to get back aboard the surprise and get back into surgeon mode because he has work to attend to. Yeah, and, and, and I just love this. And, and I love that... Um... How how in O'Brien's world we're all gray, we're not black and white. You know that these these you know sailors the way they welcomed him. But so immediately let's get into surgeon mode. Martin and Hogg, it turned out, had kind of led the delegation to go aboard the Pahi. They they took gifts. Hogg could speak the local language, but they were immediately attacked. And some seamen, you know, tried to help drag them back. Those seamen were speared 
beaten and stabbed. And as they were kind of getting away, even more crew were injured. The Pahis sailing away, but they're slinging stones and darts while they're sailing away. So they really had a lot of injuries here. And there are a number of people down there that are far outside the capabilities of anybody to treat right now, Martin being one of them. And, and Moet's telling Jack a little bit about this as, as Stephen goes below. Um, and Moet says that he thinks that they're just completely unfazed by cannon fire uh, or, you know, muskets or pistols or anything because they didn't know what it was. And, and Jack says he's glad that they didn't try to take the surprise. I think he's, he's remembering, you know, this girl slipping into the water, gutting the yeah. shark and everything. And then speaking of sharks, we get an interesting reference back here to how they use those sharks. <laughs> yeah. Stephen gets to treat Nathaniel Martin. He pulls a shark's tooth out of one of Martin's wounds, one of many wounds. This one is a shark tooth in the gluteus maximus, in the butt cheek, ladies and gentlemen. An ignoble, ignominious injury for Martin, who'd also needed 36 stitches in his scalp. And Martin's really quite taken aback <laughs> right he says he'll keep the shark's tooth he says in a reasonably firm voice after Stephen has been digging in his butt oh, in a reasonably firm voice he says oh, i'll think about it whenever i think about matrimony or women again <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna anytime he's thinking about women he's gonna look at the shark's tooth and remember yeah, yeah. right and think yeah. where it, yeah think where it ended up he tells Stephen how he was struck whilst burying his head and bowing to the women on the ship that's how he got the 36 stitches well, Stephen reminds him, this is the far side of the world, says Stephen. And Jimmy Buffett's going to remind them as well. Right. <laughs> but Mike, wh what are we going to make of this, given Stephen's reflections earlier on on these women and their character and the, the, the admiration that he has for them? And I think as he pulls the shark's tooth out of Nathaniel Martin's glutes, he's still got a bit of respect for these women. He does. He does. You know, and they're talking about this, and then Stephen goes to take an arrowhead out of Martin's calf as well. So he yeah. really did this guy in. Out. Well, later, Stephen goes down to Jack's cabin, and, and I love this description again. And it's so, again, it's, it's kind of, I, I don't know how O'Brien paints this emotional roller coaster for us and picks us up, drops us down, moves us over. So here we go. Stephen sat down in his particular chair and looked about the beautiful room. Everything was in its place. Jack's telescopes in their rack, his sword hanging by the barometer, the cello and fiddle cases lying where they always lay, and the particularly magnificent gold-mounted dressing case come music stand Diana's present to her husband, standing where it always stood, and the unlucky brass box from the Dane, its seals intact, was hidden behind the foot wailing, as he knew very well. But there was something amiss, and all at once he noticed that deadlights had been fitted to the stern windows. No one could possibly fall out of them. <laughs> no, no, it's not that, said Jack, catching his look. That would be locking the horse after the stable door is gone. A very foolish <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> Another uh, Aubreyism there. And Stephen says, still in all, there's some horses that are obliged to be controlled, I'm afraid. So <laughs> a little nice insight on Stephen's part. And Jack, again, trying to protect his, his dear friend's feelings. No, no, it was just that I think we may have a blow and I do not choose to lose the window glasses again. Ah, 
says Stephen. Is that right? I had supposed the sea was calmer, so he he knows that it's just to assuage his feelings. Oh, says Jack, so it is, but the barometer has dropped in a very horrid manner. Uh, forgive me, Stephen, I, I just must finish this page. So he's he, he's like, okay, I got to drop. I've been found out. Let me get back to my writing here. Uh. And it's, it's a very lovely little bucolic moment. And not only are they back with the, the, the furniture and the musical instruments that they love, not only things that we see, but also things that we can smell. Because as they sit there, and I think Stephen, first of all, thinks this must be a hallucination because he's pretty sure that they ran out of cheese a long time ago. They can smell toasted cheese and they hear Killick singing somewhere about rum. Now, Stephen wonders if this could be an olfactory illusion, thinking then about how the mind falls into error. That's a theme that he's often reflected on in the past. He also thinks about how Killick, like the purser, is able to take advantage of certain perquisites or perks, as we might call them, of his job. Stealing, which in the case of the purser is seen as sort of okay. No one thought the worse of him as long as he didn't actually get caught selling things over the side. And Mike, there's a, there's an old joke, isn't there? What, what what do you mean stealing? Well, we agreed that when you hired me, you said you'd give me twenty thousand dollars, and I told you I'd take twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> right, that's right? the purser's salary. Right? There you go. That's purser's <laughs> even handedness for you. But this was not a perk for the captain steward who, unlike the purser, never sold stuff over the side, but kept it for himself and his friends. And Mike, that's the point. It's a connection of friendship. And Killy had indeed kept back some of the old cheese, and he was, in fact, keeping it for Jack and Stephen. Stephen, it says, was aware that his mouth was watering, but that at the same time his eyes were closing. A curious combination, truly. He heard Jack say that it was certainly going to blow. And with that, he went fast to sleep. Wow. So it's it's the end of chapter eight. And I, I can't help, you know, I was transported to reading uh, stories to my kids when they were little. And with that, he went fast to sleep. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, just, I love this after this you know, incredible chapter. There we are. And Jack safely in the cabin. Stephen falling asleep. Oh, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, we've been on quite the journey. Right. This last chapter, quite the journey. So I, I guess, Mike, we're back in pursuit of the Norfolk. But right. We've had mention of Diana and the, and the object. What about Stephen and Diana after all his reflection on women and their fortune in the world? Will Diana have a club out? for Stephen's bow when he finally meets her, the way that the Pahis crew had a club out for Martin when he bared his head. Wow. We've only got two chapters left, Ian. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen here. How could we possibly find out unless, unless, Ian, we pull that book down off the shelf again next week? What would you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? With all my heart.
some politics that's too bizarre at home. The way I flew tuned into blue, maybe Amsterdam or Rome. Awakened by a stewardess with Spain somewhere below. On the threshold of adventure, God, I do love this job so. So while I make my move on the big board game, up and down that Spanish high. 